Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. We had a beautiful day out there today. We got a chance to be out in the sunshine this morning. And in studio with me this morning is Stephen McDowell. And he brought two sons with him, his two sons. And they're sitting in the in the studio watching us and listening to us. And I guess during the break, they'll tell us what we are doing, what good or not. Okay. <laughs> but we're going to talk about co-ops this morning. Stephen is the Director of Membership and Development with KDC. Uh, in D.C., uh, we're going to talk about urban and rural, the dynamics between urban and rural, as particularly as it relates to diversity, getting more black, brown, and quite frankly, poor whites involved in the cooperative movements. And he made a presentation over in the U.K. We're going to talk a little bit about that, youth education, and really, which I've not heard about until he started talking to me about predatory grocery, this sort of dollar. So we got a lot to talk about Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Vernon. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I am glad that you're here. I'm glad to see you and your offspring this morning. It's great, <laughs> particularly when we talk about youth education. I know when I met your son on the National Mall, yeah. on the National Ball for Stu, uh, Co-op Festival last October. Absolutely. And that's coming back again this October. A co-op impact and co-op festival on the mall where all of these different cooperatives come out and put up tents and tell people what their co-op is all about and how the co-ops function. And there's demonstrations like the electric co-op, the rural electric co-op show people how the electricity work and the rural electric co-ops, they have, they string the wire to 80% of the land mass in the U.S. And it's absolutely amazing. It's, it's amazing. Every, everyday people run these co-ops and use these co-ops. Okay. Let, let's start, Stephen. Tell me a little bit about your history. Well, um, I grew up, I'm a native Washingtonian, which I don't know, there might not be many of them around. Graduated from Duke Ellington School of the Performing Arts in Georgetown University. Uh, major was literary media. Uh, that was an exciting, actually, time. Uh, it was a time where, uh, you know, it was the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I uh, had an opportunity to meet a lot of stars. I was actually participated in uh, President, President Clinton's inauguration. I was behind stage, got to take a lot of really cool photographs of... Uh, like Kenny G, Kenny Rogers, Will Smith, Whoopi Goldberg. That was like, I mean, that was one thing that Duke Ellington School of the Arts really offered young people in this area was an opportunity just to connect with people who were active in the arts. And um, growing up in an artistic family like myself, um, my mother actually is an actress. Delilah Pierce is another local name. My great aunt, whose work can be found down in the Smithsonian. She was very much active in the arts. Uh, So I grew up in an 
in, in, in an artistic family, also an entrepreneurial family mm. here. My great uncle, Joe Pierce, uh, was one of the partners of the, uh, what is it, John R. Pinkett Insurance Company down on, in Shaw. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of history um, that I grew up through in Washington, D.C. And then once I graduated in 1994, I kind of went to a couple universities, but ended up landing at Northeastern University up in uh, Boston, uh, which is great because I love New England. Uh, my family were lucky enough to have a house over on Martha's Vineyard. So, of course, I would take my friends over to the Cape uh, for breaks. And uh, so uh, I love New England. Well, and I you love said Boston. your family had a... Oh, yeah. We have a, we have a house on the vineyard. It's been in there for five generations. So you rich, boy. Okay. No. No, let me tell you. I just went up there and I did stuff uh -huh. like uh I did stuff like tore down fences. I did stuff like put up uh bedposts. Uh so it's hard work. It uh, it sounds glamorous, but I'm more I'm more or less interested in the local people uh that are hard working, uh, that rugged independence of the vineyard. Okay, okay. Uh, already though, Stephen R. McDowell the second. What I'm getting <laughs> you grew up in DC. Yes. And your family were entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. artists mm -hmm. that had a cottage on the Cape. Yes. So I get that you come from influence, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, where my father was a wasn't worked on a railroad. My grandfather worked in the mines, mm -hmm. and I got my first pair of shoes when I went to the first grade. So we grew up differently, and I I think therefore you have a view of growing up that most African-Americans don't have. And I just want to applaud you and your family for that. That's how I see it. Well, I, and, and I could definitely appreciate that perspective. I think on the other hand, um, I think like most families, there is a diversity um, within that family as well. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, entrepreneurs who may not have been as successful, for example, or they have been successful. They came up through the South in rural Virginia. For example, my grandfather and his brothers started one of the first owned uh, African-American trucking companies in the Jim Crow South. Uh, so when we talk about, the, you know, affluence, and all, and these these are years of people making sacrifice and working hard, and um, and these are opportunities that are not afforded to many uh, within our community in particular. But that's why I am in the co-op community because I'd like to continue to open access to uh, equality and opportunities for economics to uh, to people of color. I like that. That's a great segue from entrepreneur individual, whether it's trucking or insurance into the entrepreneur world under the cooperative world, such that more and more people can experience the history of your family. And I think it's just phenomenal and great. Absolutely. Really Thank you. Celebrate that one. That is wonderful. I taught marketing at Howard as an example, and I could tell the students I can teach you. Uh, how to do a marketing plan or a budget and this. But what I cannot teach you is what you learn at your grandpa's knee, and whether it's trucking or insurance, is how do you look at somebody in the face and know if they can do what they say they're going to do, they can do, and they will do. That you can't teach. They're kind of interpersonal kind of relationships. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think to some degree it's a burning desire within inside of you. But then also part of it is just being it's being blessed to have individuals in your life who who help you open up opportunities. Mm -hmm. And um, and we understand, you know, we, we live the African-American experience. We understand that opportunities are not as widespread as it should be. But 
Again, that's why I think that co-ops are, are definitely the answer, and I think we need to do more to continue to promote sort of that uh, that community-owned, community-led business model. So why do you think co-ops is the answer? I know it's community-owned. Why do you think co-ops is the answer? Well, I mean, I think co-ops are clearly, you know, sort of the answer, you know, when you start talking about communities um, sustaining and building businesses to invest in themselves, um, when we think about democratic membership and member economic participation and autonomy, really autonomy, uh, we're talking about our principles here in the co-op community and education and training. Co-ops offer some of the best opportunities for both rural and urban uh, communities and people of color to, to take control of their own destinies and build the businesses that impact their communities the most. So you just talked about, you went right to the principles, and I really appreciate that, and that's one of the things that I like. I like the first principle. The first principle is co-ops are open to everybody. Absolutely. It doesn't make any difference about race or or education or politics or religion or gender. It just doesn't make any difference that they're that's open for everybody. Voluntary and open and 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 anyone who has a vision and has the creativity and also has the sort of assistance from those in the co-op community to build a strong viable business can do so. You know, for example, you know, back when that Starbucks incident happened, I believe it was a couple which of years one? ago. <laughs> I know which one. I, I you know, Doug O'Brien at National Cooperative Business Association, you know, allowed me to write an article talking about how co-ops are places of inclusion. And, and, and I honestly believe that when you're looking for alternatives to places that you might feel are, um, are not as inclusive as they should be, look at your local coffee house that's a co-op. Look at, look for your local grocery store, support that grocery store, because you know that though you might be paying a little more, you're not only supporting a living wage of individuals uh, from the community, but you're also supporting that community to be sustainable and independent. So you've really hit on the reason for this show. Absolutely. And the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this show so that we can give you information about co-ops so that you can go out and you can get a job in a food co-op or search out a housing co-op to buy into or get with two or three, four or five of your neighbor's friends and start your own co-op, start your own business to solve whatever community problem that you may want to or problem or opportunity that you see. Mm -hmm. So that is the reason. And the first thing is open and volunteer membership. And the second one you mentioned is democratic member control. Absolutely. And that just gets down to one member, one vote, and there's no sort of power play based on position or how much money you have that you buy more than one share of stock. If you are a member, you get a share of stock and you get one vote like everybody else. You know, in Vernon... You in, in a former life, I worked in the medical society, and I remember hearing a report from the Congressional Budget, budget Office that talked about productivity at an all-time high, wages stagnant or decreasing. And then, you know, when you think about, you put that in the context of the co-op model, the co-op model is the best model to ensure that there's equity and individuals feel engaged in their business. Everybody's working hard, but then also everyone's taking advantage of the success and having the opportunity to participate in the success of the business. Um, that's absolutely, you know, one of the 
the greatest aspects, I think, of a cooperative enterprise. And it's one that I get excited about when I have the opportunity to talk to individuals who might not have as much experience in this form of uh, enterprise as maybe traditional business. So what you went to is this member economic participation. Ooh, Normally, you, you have to pay something in, like a membership fee for a food co-op. It could be $100, could be $500, it's right. anything. Right. Uh, any amount that the food co-op, and that's the members in the food co-op set as a membership fee. Absolutely. For a housing co-op, if it is a affordable co-op, it's called limited equity co-op, it could be the same as a security deposit, or it could be 2000 5000 If it's a market rate housing co-op, then you could say it could be whatever the, the value of it is in the marketplace. It could be $100,000, $200 million, depending on where it is and what that value is. But if there's money to be made, particularly a worker-owned co-op where the workers own it, if they have money, it's either surplus, what they call it, in a nonprofit or profit in a profit company, then the members decide who gets that money. And I like that. That was the second reason that I like co-ops. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a way of increasing financial wealth for everyday people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you hit, you brought it home. And I mean, that's absolutely the reason why anyone who is, who allows themselves to, to learn about co-ops is absolutely just so pleased and so happy to have the opportunity to either help build them or, you know, start them or help them grow or advocate for them. So, I mean, this is a definitely a cooperative moment that we're living in. And this is just a great time to be talking about it. Thank you, Stephen McDowell. We're going to take our first break and we're going to come back and talk about autonomy and independence, which is the fourth principle. We've got to own and control it. And we're going to talk about the different types of co-ops. And that's based on what who owns and controls that co-op. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. DC's News Talk, 1450 AM WOS, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and we are so excited. We have Mr. Stephen McDowell in in the studio with us today, and we're talking about, as we left the break, we were talking about the principles of co-ops. We talked about his background and his family at the beginning and how he got involved in co-ops why he was involved in co-ops or is involved in co-ops. And I told you that the fourth principle, we talked about the first one, which is volunteer and open membership. The second was democratic member control, one member, one vote. Member economic participation is the third principle. And that basically is that you have pay to get into a co-op, and when there's profits, you get money back. And the fourth principle is autonomy and independence. And I just want to say this to you real quick, Stephen, for people out there that Autonomy and independence is that you own it and you control it. And depends on who controls it, owns and controls it, tells you what type of co-op it is. And so we're going to talk about several different types of co-ops today. So just for people out there, four types, major types. If it's owned and controlled by the workers or the employees, it's called a worker-owner cooperative. And the workers decide how things go. Then if it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. 
And credit unions are one example. Housing co-ops is another example. In Madison, Wisconsin, there's a health clinic, and it's a patient-centric health clinic. The patients own and control the clinic, and they say the policies, not the doctors or some investor across country or across out of out of out of uh, uh, international. So the fourth, the third type is used by artists and farmers mostly, but more and more people are getting it's called a purchasing cooperative. And that's when people band together and buy the products and services they need to produce whatever they need. And by doing that, they get a group of people to come professional and buying these products and setting up contracts and getting more products at normally a lower price because they're buying in volume. And that's called a purchasing cooperative. And there is a purchasing co-op here in the district that's called Consumer Purchasing Alliance. Mm -hmm. And it was started to help churches and Mm -hmm. nonprofits and charter schools, things like that, Mm -hmm. to buy things. And it could be trash or solar panels, uh, copier machine, anything that they need, Mm -hmm. they can go through. And these people set that up. So that's a purchasing one. And uh, the other side of for farmers and artists you get a marketing co-op, and that's the farmers like what do you cows? They make milk. Yeah, dairy farmers. Dairy farmers. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> they sell. They sell all of their products to themselves. They're to the in terms of this marketing co-op. And Cabot Creamy is an example. Mm-hmm. Organic Valley mm-hmm. uh, for uh, cranberries. It'd be Ocean Spray. Ocean Spray. Okay. So you have all of these different companies that these farmers belong to sell their products, they package it and get their products to more markets than a farmer could do by himself, and they add value to it by producing the uh, milk in the cans or bottles or cartons and so forth. So, and I would encourage you to take your sons up to Pittsburgh sometime to uh, Ujama. Ujama. It's a artist co-op by African-American and African women. I know Lakeisha. People of color. Ujama, mm-hmm. Lakeisha, LaWolf, Lakeisha, LaWolf, and uh, Frankie. I've interviewed both of them, but I went up there and visited them. They have some great, great products. So I, I don't want to say it on the air, and I don't want to, but I've already bought my Christmas gifts. <laughs> I bought it from them. <laughs> I did. I had an opportunity to actually buy uh, two T-shirts from them as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I like I like what they're doing. I like they they've got necklaces and bracelets and clothing, uh, <laughs> book bags. I mean, they have a lot of. Di- I, just really had a, I don't like to shop, okay, <laughs> but I enjoy shopping in there. And, and they are explaining to me either who, which of their artists developed it mm-hmm. or who they bought it from, mm-hmm. okay. And so it's, it's just a great experience. And it is a so both a purchasing co-op and a marketing co-op. They have a storefront that mm-hmm. any individual artist could not afford. Mm-hmm. But by grouping together and everybody bringing their products there, they can sell it, have people that work in there, mm-hmm. and some of the artists will work in. Mm-hmm. So it just, it just it really works. It's, it's going quite good. And they have great products if you want to go <laughs> online, too. Yeah, they're awesome. Ujama. Mm-hmm. So those are the different four types. So, so we're going to talk now about the fifth principle, which is the principle that I – that's the principle I got to love co-ops. That's what drew me to co-ops. Mm-hmm. This education, training, and information. Mm-hmm. Uh, having taught 12 years of my experience, educa- and my mother was a school teacher, that teaching and education is big for me. Mm-hmm. And I know you wanted to talk about youth education. What, 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 do you, what do you do with that? Well, I mean, 
you know, let's just step back and you talked about a little bit about um, sort of my trip to the United Kingdom and that was to the United Kingdom's uh, retail uh, conference, which was all grocery. But what the research uncovered when I started preparing for that talk was this idea of predatory grocery stores. And I said, well, I said, what is going on? And then I started seeing research that suggested that the um, that dollar stores have grown 50% in eight years, totally. 50,000 in 2019. That's this year alone. 50,000 stores? 50,000 stores. And they're targeting rural, poor whites, and African-American and Latino communities um, broadly. They ate their $18 billion in sales. Get this, Vernon. That's more than Whole Foods. And um, they have more stores than Walmart and McDonald's combined. And well, oh, wait, hold on. I can't get that. They have more stores than McDonald's? And Walmart combined, they are growing rapidly. And the problem here is, you know, is that I think they sell less than 1%, according to their, according to research, less than 1% of fresh produce in their stores around the country. Their market is, I, I'm surprised they even have any fresh food because when I go in there, it's to buy some sunglasses or something that I might need. And I figure I can get a really good price on it. And mm -hmm. so, but I don't see any fresh, I wouldn't expect fresh produce. And I'm always suspicious of the drinks. Like, are these water or anything? Are they, are they the leftovers that may have been sitting in somebody's warehouse and then they buy them? Is that how they get their products? Nuclear waste with sugar. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like if you think about like, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics and you think about children, young people having type one, type two, I mean, just like diabetes, you think about the health concerns. It's alarming. It's alarming that individuals in these, what I would consider food deserts are living in such oppression because food is tied to health. And then there's healthcare deserts like over in Ward 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C., where, you know, you have to travel 45 minutes to an emergency room. So then you pump these poor, vulnerable individuals full of toxic waste and then expect them to live to, to survive a 45 minute ambulance ride to the nearest emergency room when they're in cardiac arrest. I think that's just something that's I mean, that is one of the greatest um, sort of like challenges and issues of our um, of our time and then what what I what I really thought was interesting it's in plain sight and they're bold they're CEOs in one case um, Garrett Brown told Bloomberg in 17 essentially what the dollar stores are betting on in a large way is that we are going to have a permanent underclass in America. And then Dollar General CEO Todd Bazos told Wall Street Journal, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the economy is continuing to create more of our core customers. In other words, the more lower income Americans struggle, the better dollar stores do. I literally fell on the floor to just openly admit that. Well, he could be saying that he provides a great service for poor people. That's what he could be saying. He could be saying that. But you remember back you know, in the day, back in the, not to take it there, but back in the slave days, the house people thought they had a better existence than those on the field. But nonetheless, they were still enslaved. Well, my energy level was real high when you came in here. <laughs> You've taken me way down. Well, it's sad. I mean, $18 billion in sale, dollar stores, 
less than 1% serve fresh produce. I don't think I've ever been in one that's so fresh products. They have canned foods, sugary drinks, etc. Mm-hmm. And they are betting that this inequality gap, this money gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And it would throw more and more people into poverty and more and more people would come buy their sugary drinks and sugary foods and mm-hmm. non-processed or poorly processed food. What did you call that? The toxic dump. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, no, that's that's very depressing and real. <laughs> that's why it's also very depressing that our children... Our people that are that don't have money, and fifty percent of Americans are below the below the poverty line. They're poor, they, they, and it's when you look at rural places mm-hmm. like where I grew up in West Virginia, more and more and more poor people live in these counties and these in these different states. You know, there's an education. I wouldn't call it a gap. I mean, there's just a black hole. I mean, that you can drive through where individuals are not being able to access technology. They're not able uh, to educate themselves because the cost of education has grown exorbitant and too high. And then also you couple that with food. And then some of the other challenges is, I mean, for rural America, land. Okay. Listen, we're going to take our second break, Stephen. Thank you very much. I, I, you're giving us a lot of good information. I'm going to try to, over the break, pick back my energy up so we can talk about solutions to these problems. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk, 1450 AM WOS and 95.9 FM. You know, the, this is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Mr. Stephen McDowell on, in the studio with us today. The National Co-op Bank sponsors this program to give people an idea of the benefits of co-ops so that they will go search out co-ops and buy from them and or start their own. So before we took break, and I find my energy level is not up where I would like for it to be or where we started, because we were talking about dollar stores and that they are betting on that there's going to be more and more poor people in the United States and more and more need for their products and their products are canned food, sugary drinks, and other unhealthy uh, food stock, which means that we have more and more unhealthy Americans, which means that there's more and more drain on our health systems and more and more costs involved with these health systems. And if they're poor, they likely they cannot pay for it. I do want to give a shout out to Vincent Gray, uh, former mayor of D.C., and He's a council member for Ward 7. He put in a proposal to build a hospital in Ward 8, a new hospital, and build two big box grocery stores. And he was going to rent them out to Giant or Safeway or Harris Tea or somebody. I did, Stephen, testify to ask him to take that same money that he would build two big stores mm-hmm. and build four co-ops. Mm-hmm stores for co-ops and, let the, and and create co-ops in two in Ward 7 and two in Ward 8 
to bring it to be owned and controlled by the members in that community and so forth. Any profit made, it won't go to the stockholders of Giant or Safeway or Harris Teeter. Mm-hmm. It will go to the community. Absolutely. And then the community would put in place the kinds of food that, that they would want and need. So what are some of the solutions to the problem of uh, the dollar stores other than closing the wealth gap, which is one thing that I would see co-ops doing because the Mm -hmm. members are the ones that get the money and they get education with the training and they get the money. So what what are the things that you see that would solve this problem? A number of things. At the high level, um, I believe in co-ops. So I believe that the cooperative advantage is one way and a very important way to address these challenges and issues. When I gave the talk in the United Kingdom, one example, I I started, I compared two cooperative grocery stores and, and their impact on the community in terms of being able to make a difference. And this was in research and talking to co-op developers. I I compared Weaver's Way up in Philadelphia to Renaissance uh, Community Co-op down in Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, Weaver's Way, for example, they have annual sales of $7 million, and they've grown, well, it started at $7 million in 2007, and they grew to $28 million, uh, or maybe even higher. I think they're up to about $30 million now. They have about 9,000 members, three locations, a farmer's market, and more. They're fully integrated in the community. They actually took a large part of a park in Philadelphia and, and they created a farm where mostly African-American youth come and they learn how to grow. But then they also all produce and they also learn how to sell. And um, so they're fully integrated, you know, in their community. But then you compare that with Renaissance Community Co-op, which, you know, started because a group of community uh, sort of activists and people uh, who live there pushed back on an incinerator opening in their community. And what happened was they said, well, after they defeated that, they said, well, how do we how do we turn this into something positive? Well, they decided to open a co-op. The problem is, is that they eventually opened the co-op, but the people in the community didn't support it the way they wanted it to. So then I started thinking, and this was according to the research and individuals I was talking to, and I said, well, education is the key. Why don't we target youth just like Weaver's Way in many ways and a lot of other co-ops around the country? But let's do something big at scale. You know, when I was a young person, and if I may take a little liberty, you know, I grew up in D.C. in a traditional black church. and We had vacation Bible school, summer school, uh, summer Bible school. And we had the youth from the community, some from really tough parts of town. And what happened was, is when they started coming to church, the parents saw a change in them. And then they started coming to church. So I said, well, let's take that same model model, and let's get to youth. And there's a lot of smart people in the co-op community. I mean, like the Nationals Farmers Union has, they have a curriculum. So the pedagogy is there. We don't need to say, well, let's create something. It's already there. Let's put it together. Let's target where the need is. And right now, young people need vocational and technical and practical training, like you were saying, to be able to run a grocery co-op. To be able to understand, you know, slaughtering and, and like husbandry and understand agricultural finance or finance in general. So why not create a supplemental sort of curriculum that could be sold into public schools? Because we ha- they have to fill a need. So they have to have a need for this. And to say we're going to have a broad based curriculum adopted by public schools, and that's not going to happen. But if maybe a supplemental that addresses a specific issue, that's what we have to 
to do. So, I mean, I believe that if we target youth and youth education, I believe that's the best way to change buying habits in these communities where people are shopping at the grocery stores. But then also, more importantly than that, let's get in there, help those people take control of their own community and continue to open successful grocery co-ops and or even co-ops in general so that they can have full investment in the business and in their community. Well, you talked about Weaver's Way, and they they went from seven million to twenty eight million, maybe thirty million today in two thousand seven uh, in Renaissance. And I did visit the store in Renaissance in North Carolina, and I became a member mm-hmm. in, a, in a way of helping. I talked about an hour or so with their general manager about a year before they closed, and so I was really disheartened to find mm-hmm. that they closed because a beautiful, beautiful store. But one of the things that he said he was brought in there because they were in bad shape, but they had. They had taken the space that was there, mm-hmm. and it turned out to be too much space. He said they only mm-hmm. needed about half of the space. So mm-hmm. they were paying for space that they mm-hmm. didn't need, mm-hmm. okay? And then they did not get the business that they had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up with them closing. And that was very disheartening to yes. find out about them yes. closing because it took a long time, for eight years maybe, for them to get started. Yeah, it was it was a lot of investment, yeah. as I understand. Sweat and money and everything else, mm-hmm. and then to have it not succeed is another blemish on that community. Mm-hmm. But somebody else had also told me that even though something may fail, the knowledge of the training that people got mm-hmm. means that they could start something else again, that they have exactly. a much better sense, and that could also help them in their personal lives mm-hmm. with knowing how to budget and looking at how to how to manage monies, which we're not normally taught. Exactly. So exactly. It, it may be some pluses, even though it failed. But I like your idea of getting the training about running a business and in this case, a food co-op into the schools at a very, very early age. And maybe they will help the parents to know about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I I spend even time now just talking to um, leaders in Pennsylvania, for example, in the agricultural world, and also even folks in um in in Philadelphia. Um, there there are definitely a need. There's definitely a need to have youth education, and I think KDC uh, Keystone Development Center, which their headquarters are in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, but services the entire entire Mid Atlantic region. Uh, we are in the process of developing um, some programs that we might have an opportunity to talk about at a later date once we've, you know, sort of moved further down the road. But our goal is to take young people, get young people excited about the co-op advantage. But then also what I see as a need is to foster sort of diversity through shared purpose. Oftentimes there's always this rift between rural and urban America we're all being attacked by the same predatory grocery stores. So why not look for ways and opportunities to bring us together? And for me, at the highest level, it's, it's the cooperative advantage and everything that co-ops offer. And together, we can build strong ecosystems that support our community and educate our communities. And we can realize that there's more that we have in common than that's different. Yes, that's a, and poverty knows no gender, no age, no not a, it's, it, it rips it all the way through. Absolutely. But I like your idea of the farm to table supply chain mm-hmm. and educating young people about that, how it, how it all works. Absolutely. And that doesn't make any difference if they're young in New York City or 
young in Kentucky. Absolutely. In one of the rural counties or Absolutely. West Virginia. Just doesn't this how do you get food from the farm to the table so that they have great n- nutrition mm-hmm. and less disease? Absolutely. It goes hand in hand. Absolutely. And and I and I said I get a shout out to Vincent Gray because I I testified, but I listened to the I was starting from 10 o'clock. I didn't testify to four. So I got a chance to listen to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they were talking about the whole, that health is not at the hospital. No. 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 It's at the table. It's at the table. Absolutely. It starts very, very, and it even starts with prenatal care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it starts very, very early, very, very early on and continues. And they were talking about, and this is why he wanted to build these, because there are food deserts in Ward 7 and Ward 8. <laughs> Absolutely. So how do you, food deserts, health deserts, all of the kinds of things. That, mm-hmm. And and somebody was saying that people, which I didn't know, and I do property management, but they'll, they'll put freezers in their apartments so that when they go to the store, they they buy all of this bulk so that they can freeze it, mm-hmm. okay? Because you have to go to the store and take a taxi back or something back, and so they try to get a lot of stuff and, and freeze it. So there's all of these different kinds of habits that people do, mm-hmm. and too often they're not healthy habits. Correct. Okay. And, you know, right here in D.C., you know, and we have the uh, sort of the, the local corner Chinese store, where you would go and you get yourself, a, you know, a cheeseburger or chicken wings with, of course, the D.C. staple mumbo sauce. And not that. The, listen, I'm not I'm, I'm not judging. But what I'm saying is, is that eating like that over a prolonged period of time, instead of having fresh produce in your community, can it will have a disadvantage. And and you're absolutely right. There just has to be education uh, to teach people that, yeah, it's OK to have bad food every now and then. But let's try to have at least what an 80 uh, percent plant based diet. Let, let's really gun for that. I remember my doctor put me on it as well. Made me a vegetarian, a vegan for 30 days. 80 percent vegetarian plant based diet. At least. OK. Going from almost zero <laughs> to eighty. That's the that's the thing I I know it's ambitious. But that is the that would be the sort of goal to get the nutrition and and the health. But that normal that Chinese food, a lot of these carry out places are a huge amount of salt. All the time. Okay. Sodium. Salt or MSG, which is huge, huge, huge sodium. So it's like mumbo sauce. And the kind of ingredients that goes in mumbo stuff. Yeah. Okay. I know. Not to, you know, but it's, these are all, but you see how everything in our ecosystem is, they're interconnected. And you can't have a conversation with about changing buying habits and the cooperative advantage without starting at eating habits, buying habits, you know, you know, how you perceive your body being in a, a, your temple. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but what I'm saying is, is that we all should keep striving for that goal. So, yeah, you know, your food is is very much connected to the entire ecosystem that we exist in. Well, I just want to thank your two sons because uh, they told me I look like I was 40 or 50. Absolutely. Uh (laughs) And I told them I'll be 72 this year, but they said it didn't look like it. But I told them it depends on what you put in your body. Absolutely. Totally depends on what you put in your body. Keeping the alcohol out, the smoking out, smoking of anything. Right. Nicotine or anything else. 
And why well, even stop doing caffeine too? Really? Yeah. So <sighs> I get a loop. I get some in green teas, but I pretty I stopped all of it and putting much more green stuff in the body, either green or for me it's fish. And if I were to eat a piece of meat or something, I'd get it from plant-based cows. No, no, no. All right, everybody, we have our last break, and then we'll come back and talk more with Stephen Liddell, Director of Membership at KDC. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.N. 99.9 FM. There this is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Stephen McDowell on the, uh, in the studio with us this, this uh, morning with his two sons. And his son was telling us during break how he had a chance to go to Ward 8. His school had a project looking at food deserts. And they walked from the metro to the nearest grocery store. And it was about an hour going to there and coming back. And they got a sense to see how people, what they have to go through to buy groceries in a food desert. And it had been interesting to see how much fresh vegetables that store had. But that is the issue a lot is how do we get fresh produce? And I like Michelle Obama talking in urban communities how to start your, your fresh vegetables and growing them yourself mm-hmm. on your own particular farm to grow them in. I've been wanting to do that. Matter of fact, I may go back to the co-op and see if we can't get something started. I live in a 57-unit housing co-op. Oh. And if, if we could not, we got a hill that has grass, and so we have to cut the grass and fertilize the grass and stuff. Maybe we could take that hill and make some tears and grow some food. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go back and talk to them and see if we might want to start that for next year and get ready for doing something like that. You know, that's a great idea. I mean, you know, and also, I mean, if you could have like a small little area where you can keep your own chicken or ducks, you know, you know, well, you, just took, <laughs> you took it a whole nother level. <laughs> I did visit Cornelius Blanding right outside of Atlanta, mm. uh, the Federation of Southern Co-ops, and he took me by a place that they had. They have a, a big container of water and tilapia. They were growing tilapia in this tank. Really? And then the waste product from the fish was feeding plants. Now, see, oh. that's recycling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that was quite interesting. So I was thinking about something like that because we had 100 chickens when I grew up, my parents, and they can be messy and dirty and noisy. Uh, the eggs are great. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they run around. You want them to be able to get out in the yard, so you need space for chickens and oh, yeah. other animals like that. But for this tilapia, it was in a just a big holding tank, and the water just kept flowing, too. So, yeah, that was that was great. But with with the inequality that's happening around the world, but particularly here in the U.S., you get the tax breaks that Donald Trump and the Republicans created that will pull more wealth and giving it to the wealthy than has ever happened in the U.S. since slavery. Mm. That one policy, and it took the money and gave it to the wealthy and not to the everyday people, which means there's going to be more and more poverty, more and more inequality. Mm-hmm. And of course, 
that lends itself to more and more blacks not getting. They look at the net worth of blacks versus white, and the, the, the number that sticks with me is that black women's net worth is seven dollars mm-hmm. on average. Mm-hmm. Okay, you hear of a few people like the Oprah Winfrey's of the world that are billionaires, but that's so not the case. It's rare, 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 it rare, is rare, rare, rare. Mm-hmm. And so we take our head off and celebrate her for her accomplishments and her talents and her business acumen, mm-hmm. but then looking at most people. So how? How do we get this diversity and get where poor people, again, poverty, nothing growing up in West Virginia. I got really clear that poverty doesn't care if you're white, black, pink, green, orange. It doesn't care. You're absolutely right. And I, I'm, I'm pretty consistent in that belief as well. Um, what we have to do, and this is me living this experience, is we have to continue to have opportunities for, uh, you know, for education, opportunities to see shared purposes, like we talked about in the last segment. But more importantly, we have to have opportunities for individuals that reflect the communities we're trying to connect with seated at the table. And that's something that I know was important with KDC. I know it's important when I was at National Cooperative Business Association uh, with Doug O'Brien. And it's something that I live um, every day. And I talked about that um, in the UK. The biggest challenge there, for example, and I'm going to give this an example, is in the UK, in the the United Kingdom. So some of their biggest challenges align much like what we're having here. And they interviewed me and the interview is coming out in a few weeks in July. And they talked about reaching out to people of color in their community. And oftentimes, you know, I could reflect back here in America and saying, well, you know what? The greatest opportunity to reach people of color, at least in a long time ago um, or in recent history, was through the church. It was the center of the community for uh, black and brown people. And I think, you know, and oftentimes even for, for whites, uh, for rural whites. And I think we have to do a better opportunity. I know we want to, you know, keep a separation in some cases, but we have to do a better job at reaching out to those those institutions of faith because those people that are there, whether they be Indian or South Asian like they are in um, in the United Kingdom, or whether they be African American here in America or Latino or even Afro Caribbean. We have to meet the people where they are in their dynamics. So we in the co-op community, which has a, a reputation for being mostly Caucasian, we have to develop strategies to have individuals that look and reflect the communities, not just from a racial standpoint, but also from a life standpoint. You know, someone who grew up in the South, you know, and maybe even in Southeast might be open to talking to someone who also grew up in Southeast and had been afforded opportunities. They relate. Their stories can relate. So you have to have a relational story, too, as well. You know, I go out, I talk to farmers. Now, I don't have any experience growing up on a farm. But how I connect with them is this idea of bootstrapping and being able to take care of your community. You have to meet them where they are. And I think that's what we need to do more of. And that's exactly what they're looking at in the United Kingdom. And I think as we have these debates here and discussions here, because when I first started in the co-op community, I heard a lot of um, black and brown people express that they feel that 
they're not getting funded at the magnitude, say, as mostly white cooperative enterprises. That was an issue that sort of I was sort of smacked with. And I, I and I didn't react to it. I just kept talking, kept learning, and kept understanding. And my and I just keep. I have more questions. Is it the lack access of opportunity, or is the need for more education? Do we need to know more about feasibility studies and marketing plans? Do we need to know more, like you talked about, balancing a checkbook? You know, there's a lot of questions. I think it's all, all of the above. Education, people that look like me and act like me, who who relate to me. I, I think it's all of that. And that develops an ecosystem, a diverse ecosystem. We're together. We can do it together and achieve those principles that we most value within the cooperative community. I didn't ask you, but how did you get involved in co-ops? Well, you know, it's it's funny. When I first started looking at, you know, my next life and I wanted I wanted to work to help individuals who were um, who who were marginalized be able to have the opportunities that others might have. And I started, you know, I, and I came across this opportunity at NCBA Clusa. Let me tell you, this is how it NCBA happened. Clusa. At NCBA Clusa, I met Doug O'Brien and John Torres. Um, first was Brian Gunning. I interviewed with him, who was an HR person, and then met with Doug and John. But wait a minute, did you see an ad in the paper for a position? I saw an ad, and I literally applied to it because I read it. I, I was familiar with co-ops, and as, you know, I recall, you know, credit unions Co-ops, because my mother was in the telecommunications industry for a long time, and we belonged to, uh, what was it, Signal? Uh, I think that's their um, credit union. And then also there was a small grocery co-op right off of uh, Grub Road in Rock Creek Park. Uh, it didn't last long. But it was a small one that, mm-hmm. you know, we had joined. And all of this starts coming back, you know. So that's how I got introduced. And when I met Doug, I, you know, I thanked him in the U.K., and I thank him here today for even seeing that cooperative spirit. And thank him for that opportunity to work at NCBA Clusa. So you got to know about co-ops at an earlier age. I didn't learn about them until I was 55 and I started managing housing co-ops. Excellent. Everywhere in my adult career, um, educational career, I did not learn about them. Right. So what would you like to tell people as we're beginning to close out here? What would you like to leave people with? You know, it's one thing we, we've been talking about since, you know, at Impact Conference, at the festival, every day of our lives. This is a cooperative moment. The individuals are searching for opportunities to be able to take care of their families. Yes, the political rhetoric right now might be um, not what people want. But I believe no matter who you are, what's the, what your beliefs are, where, where you sit politically, everyone can believe in this, op, this self-help, taking care of your community, and also, you know, a business and an enterprise, you know, a business enterprise. So I think there's opportunities to continue to educate both rural and urban Americans, the cooperative advantage, and change buying habits, and make the world a better place. You know, making the world a better place really starts with family and then from family out to community. So the co-op experience is, for me, as so far from my knowledge, the only mechanism to really get people to create the financial and social wealth that they need in order to create helping their family and their community. Absolutely. Everybody out there, this is Vernon Oaks and Stephen McDowell has been a guest today and his two boys have brightened up my life and looking <laughs> at them uh, as they watch this program. We want to thank WOL and NCB and please have a cooperative week. We'll see you next Thursday. 
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM WOS at 95.9.